I did. When did you do that? I did it actually just before lockdown started. I did what? it for my birthday. I wanted to feel fresh. I was feeling a bit jaded and I thought, what can I do? Take it off. There's a freedom that I think black women have, and I'm not sure we always recognize that power. We have this kind of thing where we can shave off our hair as a thing. I don't I, I, I know, maybe I'm speaking. No, no, you're, you're listen, yeah. I've been looking at wigs so that when I'm ready to change my mind, I can fling on a wig and rock that wig. Uh, I think I'd seen other women, I know who it was. It was um, Andy Oliver. Okay, yeah. And I yeah. just went, yeah, man, we can really rock this. It looks yeah. good on us. Yeah, I always shave. I always, I always get fed up with my hair. Growing up, whatever insecurities I had, my resolution was you're going to see me for who I am. Aside from the fact I'm quite lazy when it comes to hair, shaving it off is like, it's me, no holds bars. There's nothing else yeah. between you and me, it's me, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, that's how I felt when I locked my hair as well. Hello, my name is Akira Jamfi and I'm the founder of the British Blacklist. And I am joined by a woman who I think has credentials are long and varied. So I'm going to hand over to you. Please introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and the work that you do. Right, well, my name is Carol Russell. And that name for me is one I carry with pride because I, the story my, my parents tell when I was born, they used to leave the light on because my mom thought I was her first child and she thought that I needed the light on. And actually what I needed was the light off, but she had the light on. And my dad in the middle of the night would always have to be rocking me to sleep because the light was on and he was tired. <laughs> and at the time there was a song, Oh Carol, Mummy said that's what he used to sing to me. Oh, Cara, please, me, I beg your door. Please, please, me, I beg your door. Sleep, sleep. And so for me, it's like, yeah, man, yeah, my daddy named me. <laughs> what do you do? I am a writer and a storyteller. I trained first as an actor in Jamaica and came back here and uh, started to work. And at that particular time, it was actually not very easy to find work, especially on television. So I did lots of theatre and theatre's great and I love theatre. I, I, I love the live aspect of theatre, but it doesn't pay you enough money to hold body and soul together. So after about 15 years in theatre, the bailiff was knocking on the door. So I decided I needed to do something else as well. And I thought, what else do I love to do? And I thought, I've always loved telling stories. It's been one of my big things. It was, I, I loved, English for that at school. And so I thought, let me see if I can write. And so I started writing and I was very lucky that Paulette Randall contacted me because she'd heard me walking around the place going, yeah, yeah, I'm writing now, you know? And she, and she asked me to pitch for the very first Windrush series that Lenny Henry's company did. I pitched a, a character and she loved it. And she said, okay, here's your commission. I was like, oh my God. I got my first commission, oh my God. Out of that, I got an agent. And after that, I, do, I was just writing all the time. And so I became a writer for television. You saying that you had your first commission, that was, 20, that was 2019. No, my first commission was in 1990, 
eight. Yeah, because only because you said Paulette Randall and the Windrush Chronicles. What was the first in that respect? Was it the first for the very first when Lenny Henry had his Sir Lenny Henry had his um, first company? It was called Crucial Productions. Right, right, right. That company. So we're talking twenty odd years ago when I had my very first. That's what I was going to say. There's no, listen. First of all, I was going to get angry and say, no, 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 no. They can't be this. 2019 was your first commission. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't go with what I'm saying. But yeah. I wouldn't be surprised also because we know the nature of the land of this industry that we're in. So I just wanted to clarify that. But so right, I get you. Yeah. A few things that you said. So we could start at the beginning. <laughs> so yeah. You're minding your own business in Jamaica, wanting to be an actress. Is that what it was? Yes. Well, it was really odd because uh, Jamaica, I don't know if West African countries are like this as well, but when I was growing up in Jamaica, if you got your A-levels, they had this thing called each one teach one. Okay. So I was able to be employed in a school as an English teacher. And I taught English because I always loved performing. When the festival, we'd have a national festival every year and I would train the kids to mm. go into the festival. And a guy used to come around who was kind of like the adjudicator for our area. And one day he came with a, an application form for drama school. And I was like, no, 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 Captain, no, 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 no. And he, every time he came, he came with the, yeah. And in the end, I just said, you know what, let me just fill this thing in and let this man come off my back now, you know? And I got an audition and I got in. When I was in there, I just thought, oh my God, this is absolutely where I belong. What did I mean I was going to law school? What did I mean I was going to do that? This is where I belong. So I did that. And my mum didn't even know because she was over here. I was over there. You know, we are so such a resilient, resilient, resourceful people. And the bounce back is real because even when you're of the diaspora and you think to back home, you have like your stock, apart from maybe if you've lived there, so you have yeah. a different experience. So I'm from yeah. West Africa, Ghana, but I've never lived there. And I have a very British black girl version of being Ghanaian, right? We didn't even just go back home every year like others did. So I really have a limited perspective. And you forget that there's a whole rich world of arts and entertainment. And though you know that obviously there are, you know, black shows in our own black countries, obviously. Yeah. But how do those shows come on TV? And you are, when you're in the diaspora, you're so disconnected and so force fed through this Western prism, that yeah. Western lens that black people can't do this, that or the other. Yet in our own home countries, yep. thriving industry. I would never have done that had I stayed here. Right. Because you know what our parents of African descent are like. Education, education, education. Exactly. Liar, doctor, accountant. Mm. So I would have been following that path. But you're absolutely right. For me, being in Jamaica, I could look around. The madman walking the street looked like me. The person who was in Parliament, she looked like me. Exactly. So whatever I wanted to do, I had a role model to follow. You know, back home, there's still the kind of... You've got to make it, you've got to make it, and you better take the more yeah. traditional professions. But at the very least, you would have a reference point. Well, there's that Jamaican actor on TV, yeah. so I can do that. Whereas over here, it's like, well, that's because I remember my mum, I remember saying I wanted to be an English teacher because English was my thing too. Yeah. An English teacher, mum was like, but English, a black English teacher. So she had her reservations and she wanted me to be 
lawyer doc, you know, they just reel off the top lines yes. and I'm just like, there's nothing else in between. And yes. she, like, if you're going to be a teacher, that's a bit risky because we don't see black teachers. So you might tr struggle there. But being back home, it's just the number that's been done. It really, I mean, <laughs> the number is real. It is real. The number is real. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, even writing this book with my, with my friend, I wanted to make sure that what the things, some of the things that were in there were our history as, as women of African descent, because I don't particularly like just calling myself a black woman. Hey. I come from somewhere, yeah? And the place for me that I come from, I, 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 I want to go beyond, um, beyond the enslavement. Mm. And, and, and think about where would I have been had it I not been, had my people not been enslaved? And so I call myself a woman of African descent. And that's very interesting because <laughs> that takes um, an evolution and a life, life learning, I think, in some cases, because I, I mean, I'm a 70s born, late 70s born child. So I grew up in the 80s and I grew up at a time when Africans were like, let's pretend we're Jamaican because we're not going to get anywhere <laughs> without being cussed out or whatever. And it depends on where you grew up because I, I never had that problem. However, I, I, one of my best friends would always speak with a Jamaican and it was always Jamaican. There was no other island. No, yeah. no it was yeah. always Jamaican. And she spoke with a little bit of a twang and she, and I always think, well, why are you doing that? But I got it. It's a survival mechanism. And yeah. so we were met with that wall. When you came over, because I feel like there's a generational moment in the UK arts world where there was a group of you guys that did some stuff. And yeah. now we've got this new generation of people doing some stuff. Who are your peers? I know there were like groups and... My peers are Donna Kroll, Ellen Thomas, gosh, Martina Laird. What was it like in that moment when you were all coming up and you, and you connected and... When I came over, it was, it was really tough because I didn't know anybody here in <laughs> the arts at all. So... I had to really feel my way. The very first piece of theatre I ever did was The Tempest. I was working in a jewellery shop in Brixton because you know what our parents are like again. Now there's no sitting around in my house, go and get a job. So I went and got myself a job in a jewellery shop in Brixton. And that's how I heard about this company that was working out of the Angel Church. And I just went there and kind of said, um, yeah, you know, I'm an actress, you know? And they let me in. And then the next thing I did, I went to the, what was called the cockpit theater back then. And the cockpit summer school theater was the, well, some of us used to call it the poor people's equivalent to the national. <laughs> so I got into that and I met Trevor Etienne there. I met Irma Innes there. So yes, yeah, so those are my peers as well. And then out of that, I started to get little jobs, but I still didn't have a card. And in those days, you had to have an equity card or you couldn't work. How did you know the steps to take? The only way I knew the steps to take was, was my peers who were going, right, now, Carol, what you're going to have to do, yeah, is you're going to have to get yourself a job. You've got to do this many hours to get yourself a card. Da, 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 and this is what you've got to do. Otherwise, you won't be able to work in, in proper, proper theatre, as they yeah, used to. Yeah. So I did that. And I, that's what I had to do. And I had to, uh, because in Jamaica as well, when you train as, a, um, as an actor, or a musician, or an artist, or a dancer, you also have to take a teacher's qualification. So you have to, we are, we're, we're qualified both as teachers and practitioners. 
because otherwise we wouldn't eat. You can't just live as an artist in the Caribbean. There's no social safety net. So they, they make sure, they say, no, no, we can't be turning out people who can just act and paint. They have to be able to do something else as well so that they can eat and that's, live. That's so sensible. <laughs> it's just so, so sensible. Exactly. So that was the thing that I was able to use to get myself into a company so that I was able to help them, you know, create theatre and education pieces for schools and, and do all of that sort of stuff. And then when the next free equity card came along, it was mine. <laughs> what, did you have to apply for an equity card? How did it work? Like so it, it, a company would get um, two equity cards a year. Oh, wow. They could give to new people entering the profession. So it was, those were the days when really it was a closed shop union. So you had to have a card in order to work and each company would get two cards and they would choose who they were going to give those cards to. And as um, an actor of Af African descent, it wasn't easy to find places where you could get those cards. How did you guys survive those times? Listen, man, we just supported each other. We helped, we told each other where the next job was, or we think they've got an equity card still, or whatever, or, or just come to my yard and eat some food and come back with cry and tea. <laughs> That's the commune, the community commune. Yeah. Um, and you know, like where we're at today, does it feel any different with the revolution that's happening now? Because I think, because I've had these conversations, I've spoken to Paula, I've spoken to you now, and other people who have generation, just a generation above before us, who, and I say us, because I'm in the next, I'm in the one after yes. you, I think, yes. and you've got the youngest. Does it seem different today? It does on one level. I think for me, it started to change again because something happened in 2005. I think one of the things that happened was the advertising money wasn't flowing into terrestrial television like it used to. So things got kind of a bit cut off. And what that meant was all of us who were working as writers and actually a lot of actors just got dropped. In 2005, we just kind of disappeared and there were no more either original pieces from us on television or even adapted pieces from us on television. There would be the odd one-off, but there was nothing of any substance. So between 2005 and 2015, it was a wilderness out there. From 2015, well, actually 2014, because that's when Marlon and them did run yeah. for Channel 4. Yeah. That was, that was the, the first beginning of it. Of, of a rebirth, of a regrowth of our input into this, the industry, the British industry. And I'd been doing work with my company, Fresh Voices, to champion and amplify the work of ethnically diverse writers. Tell us about Fresh Voices, please. I set up Fresh Voices in 2011 because I think it was 20, end of 2010, beginning of 2011, that there was some conference on at BAFTA talking about, you know, how are we gonna get in again? And I went to that and I was just afterwards, there was a whole parcel of us and we were vexed. We were vexed. It was like, we've been hearing this. How many times do we need to hear this, this. before something actually happens? I mean, but for real. 
So we sat down in BAFTA and because I was, I'm a member, it was good. So I, I kept in a whole heap of them and Donna was there and she kept in another puzzle and we just cast them. Mm. And then after that, I was on my way home and I was thinking, I've got to be able to do something about this. I can't just sit here moaning because moaning doesn't help me and it doesn't help us. And I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, okay, the notes we were getting back always was, ah, oh, you see, yes, we see your family drama, but um, Middle England wouldn't really like it. We don't really think Middle England would buy it. It's really good. I mean, you're a really good writer, but uh, yeah, no, there's no, we, we can't, we can't, we can't. And I thought, okay, you need to see that not only Middle England, but the rest of Britain are ready for us. So what I decided to do was put on table reads, or actually I stood them up, readings of people's pilot scripts. And I got some money from what was um, the Creative Diversity Network. Mm. And I went to BAFTA and said, hey, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> and I said, I want a space. And they gave me the space. And with the money that I got from um, the Creative Diversity Network, I paid for food because I know that us people, we like to know that we have food, can eat and proper food, please. Absolutely. And I paid the actors and I paid the director and I used my own script first because I didn't want to ask anyone to do something that I hadn't done myself. Sure. And so we used my script first and, we, and I then invited members of the industry onto a panel. So it was Ben Stevenson at the time, Lizzie McCurry, a writer, and Tony Grounds, another writer, to come and hear, watch the thing, watch the audience, because I invited producers on the one hand and ordinary viewing public on the other hand. I wanted them to see in the same way that I watched Simon Cowell when he's doing anything, he's not looking at what's on stage, he's looking at what's happening in the audience yeah. and seeing if there is a, a, a place for it. So I did that and that worked. And so I did some more of those. And then I started doing boot camps and I managed to get some money from Skillset as it was then. And I managed to get an, a brilliant introduction to a wonderful man who was the head of the short courses at the London Film School so that they would give me the backup and the space to run these boot camps for ethnically diverse writers. And that's what I did. So I did those. I worked with Directors UK. I worked with ITV. I worked with BBC. And all of this was just to amplify these voices and make sure that our writers and our stories were being seen and heard. And I commend you for that. The resilience and again, the survival techniques of how we adapt to the oppression that we feel face in these industries. Yeah. Um, and then we find a way in and we find a way to like, well, no, this is what you're going to do for me because I'm going to do this for my people and yeah. keep it moving. What you've been through obviously feeds into your new book, Invisible to yeah. Invaluable, but you created, <laughs> wrote, or we, no, you weren't the, you, did you create Coming At You, Cleopatra, or you were one of well, the writers? We, well, we did, because it was me and Roger Griffiths and a guy called Steve Rock. There you go. And... Um, so we created it from, from scratch. It was, uh, it was a format that belonged to the, the company, but we, we did it. So what? we interviewed them. We spent time, we spent a week with them 
so that we got to know them. It's like one of the early reality shows, even though it was like scripted, but it's like one of the first reality type shows. And for, I can't remember how I can't remember how old I was. However, it was in a, such an important, fantastic, phenomenal show on so many levels. Because when you said that gap, that real long year gap of nothing on TV, while we only referenced Desmond's and then Desmond's with um, fond memories, the Crouches with distaste. Yes. Cleopatra with fond memories. And then everything else was American. Bar one or two shows on UK TV, everything, my culture was sh shaped by African-American culture. Yes. What was the mood like when you were coming up with Cleopatra? And was it a hopeful time? Hopeful, because again, up until that time, I had never worked with two women of African descent who were executive producers. Orlette Randall and yes. her sister Bev. It was like being at home. And the, the three of us as writers, we too were of African descent. Mm. And the people we were writing about were of African descent. And it was just like, yes, man. It was hopeful. I thought that the industry was going to grow that way. That's why I was really shocked when about three or four years later, it was kind of like, whoa, how, when did the, the weird, but the work just stopped. What do you think it was? It was two things. It was the fact that the advertising revenue had been yeah, cut. Yeah. The second thing was that the commissioners started to want authored pieces. So one person was writing an entire series, which meant that there was no room anymore for you to, to learn your craft on other shows. You had to come up with something original. I think it's like there's been a reintroduction of writing teams in the UK where America's had writing teams. I don't know how long for, but writing teams, writing teams. People are like, we need writing teams because this, what, this is why you need to have people in the room so that stories aren't written from a very warped, distorted perspective, Absolutely. especially when you're writing about groups that you don't know about. So there were writing teams before, then the commissioners changed their mind and now they flipped again. No, what it was, because actually Roger, Steve and I were the first, I think, of that kind of writing team. We worked together. We worked in the same room. So what we did was we asked Endemol to give us a space in their building oh. so we could be together. Because originally they commissioned us to write two scripts each. It was a six, uh, it was supposed to be a six series, episode series. Yeah, we, that was a commission and we said no we don't want to do it like that we haven't got enough time because actually we had eight weeks to write six scripts and we said no it can't work that way we need to be together to make this work yeah. so we asked them for a room they gave us a room and then what we would do is we would beat out a story and we would send the story upstairs and then we would beat out another story while we're waiting for the notes on that one. And when they came back with the notes on that one, we'd send the other one upstairs yeah. and then we'd do a proper beat outline. And then we'd send that upstairs and then the other one would come down and we'd do... So that's how we did it. That's how we were able to get everything done in time. So it would take us ab about a week to write an episode. So once we got to script, we did it even different from the Americans. So one of us would write um, the act one, the other one would write act two, and the third one would write act three. But because we'd written a beat sheet, we all knew where the story was going. And then when we'd finished that, and we could do that in a day and a half, we'd jam the whole thing together and then polish and polish and polish until it, 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 the thing sparkled. It's, I mean, it sounds so sensible. It just, it's like the common sense is there. And then, 
they decided to switch it up. Yeah. When did your frustration with the industry kick in? Because that led to the book. Oh, the frustration kicked in round about 2007, 2008, when okay. I realised there was there were no jobs. Okay. There were no jobs at all. And um, my agent let me go because they couldn't get any work for me. And that's just on screen, on stage, acting? No, that was just, that was writing. Oh, okay. So, because up until that point, I had been getting all the work I'd gone up for. Yeah. And so they were really pleased. And then, and as I say, 2004, 2005, it just died. And then sort of three years later, three, four years later, it was like, yes, yeah, sorry, it's not working out. So bye. <laughs> mm. And I just left going, oh my God, now how am I going to, how am I going to get work now? Because these people won't look at you without an agent. So what did you do in those years? I started writing for primetime and thinking what I need to do is prove that I can write a primetime series okay. and hope that my other experience will stand me in good stead. I learned that it doesn't, it didn't, because... They just kept thinking, well, you're, you know, you're kind of doing young adults or children's stuff. You can't, you know, we don't know. It's, it's, a, it's like another world. Mm. And I thought, okay, but I'm still, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write it. I'm going to prove it, which is why I wrote a few scripts over those three years and then went to uh, Fresh Voices and went, right, okay, now let's show people what I can do and what other people can do too. Where did Tracy Beaker fall into all of this in this moment? Tracy Beaker came after Coming At You. Okay, so it's earlier. Yeah, so it's earlier. So that was 2000, 2001, 2002. Oh, okay. And yeah. so, do you know what I mean? And then there was kind of like, so where did work? Where, where did work gone? <laughs> you know, your CV is supposed to speak for itself. Yes. And it's supposed to pick up where you left off and it shouldn't be, it should be fine. And then you do see from a race perspective, what was it because I'm like, what? Because you get boxed in, like you can only write black stuff. But you mentioned that they were judging you the fact that you've written young people's stuff. Yes. So was it young people, black people, being a woman? Was it all of that stuff or what? All of it. Yeah. I think it was all of it. It was all of it. And I do feel, just going back to the question you asked in terms of the change, yeah. I'm feeling, I am feeling a change and I'm really, really hopeful that this time the change will stick because we've got four or five years. We have four or five years and then bam, it gone again. I, it, it can't. How many times have you seen this in your career? Four. But the, everyone does say there's a little shift of difference. And I, I've been saying that with the internet because I, me and you were both pre and after internet people. Yeah. So okay, definitely remember, like the fact that information is so readily at your hand now, it makes it difficult for those things for the for a commission to say, well, actually, Middle England won't watch it because we know that Middle England's watching a whole bunch of things on Netflix and the streamers, and they're making things successful that you wouldn't even expect to be successful. And the thing that the, one of the things that interest has interested me is also Gogglebox. Yes, interesting. I remember watching the Gogglebox where they were watching a documentary where a, a woman of African descent, she was Caribbean, had lost one son who had been killed. It was one of those kind of, you know, documentary series. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. So he had been killed and she had another son and that other son had been stabbed too and was in hospital. Listen! The white people up in Liverpool 
and Birmingham was bawling. And let me tell you, they understood her, even though her accent was strong. They understood every word and one of them was going, oh my God, oh God, I don't know what I'd do if I was there, oh my God. And I said, look at that, look at that. They get it because mm -hmm. we're all human. And those who want to see us as human will see us as human. Those who don't, oh, well, I don't have anything. I can't help them. So I remember going to school. I went to school in Wimbledon. Everyone was talking about the Fresh Prince. All the posh white kids were talking about Fresh Prince, yeah. Will Smith. So I know, we knew on the ground level that you can watch a thing and it's fine. It just has to be good. That yeah. It just has to be good and it carries. What you're saying goes into the next part where you met Jane to write this book. Yeah. So Jane's obviously a white woman. Yes. Jane Evans. How did your paths cross? <laughs> and what were the, some of those conversations that came to you coming together to create yeah. your book? Okay, so um, we, ca we came across each other because I wanted to write a pilot script. I needed to write the pilot script. I was working doing other work as well. And I knew that if I could buy myself some time, then I'd, I'd get it done. And the NFTS, the National Film and Television School, runs a short course called writing the pilot mm -hmm. and it's a two-week course and I thought yes I, I can do it because yeah I know what it is I want to write I just need the time to do it and I went into the room the first day and the only chair that was left was beside Jane so I sat down beside Jane and we were the two um midlife women in the room so we were there and and we would chat we'd chat in between sessions and stuff and then she asked me one day, I know that I'm going to be sounding like, you know, the white girl that you hate, but do you know, and I, and I rolled my eyes around in my head because I was getting ready to, no, I don't know whoever it is you're asking me, but I don't know them. <laughs> and she said, Verna Wilkins. And you did know her. I <laughs> know Verna Wilkins. So it was like, weird. Okay then. And then we would, we talked and uh, Verna was her next door neighbor when she was growing up. Okay. And so, um, and I knew Verna as a publisher. Mm. And um, I was like, oh, okay, all right then. And the other, so the, as we talked, Jane would be talking about things from a very white perspective. And I'd be saying, yeah, but that's your experience. But what about, what about women of African descent? What about South Asian women? What about East Asian women? You can't keep looking at all of this yeah. through your own lens. And so we, that, those were the conversations that we had and they were robust. Why, <laughs> I love that. Why, um, what is the confidence that you had? Because you know, some people feel that they can't speak up and especially to white women. I, I, it's a conversation that was always um, skated around, I think in certain years where you wouldn't, you'd fall into the brainwash that white women are very, very, very sensitive and very, very, you need to be protective of their feelings, even as black people, even as yeah. people the oppressed. Yeah. So there was an avoidance of that conversation, but I feel like culture has kind of pushed them forward. And now we have the Karen situation here. I mean, globally now everyone recognizes yeah. the Karen. But, and the Beckys. And the Beckys. <laughs> but, and I, what was, what was your confidence in, why was it, why was Jane someone that you knew you could trust to be robust with? and then go on to work with her on this project? I think what it was, it was, it was two things. I'd reached my fifties and I was like, <laughs> who's got time to play? Right. And, and skirt round and tread on eggshell. 
listen, if you can't take me, off you go. You can move on because there's more people for me to talk to. So it was it was partly that. And it was also as, as I, because I was confident to do it, I was able to watch, to see how she responded. And she wasn't defensive. She's never defensive. It's That was something I had never seen before. That lack of total defense. She, she wouldn't be going, well, no. And she'd go, mm. I did that, did I? You see, this is why I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed. And I go, no, don't be ashamed. Your shame is no use to me. Sometimes she would ask, but what should I do? And at that time I'd say, go and look it up on Google. And, and you can come back and, and talk to me about it, but you are gonna go and look it up on Google. And that's what she did. And then we'd have these long conversations. I mean, we have a joke that if I see her name come up on the phone, if I ain't got two hours to give her, I'm not answering the phone. And she's not, she, and the same with hers. So this book really is, you're absolutely right. It is an extension of those conversations that we had over the years. So Invisible to Invaluable, unleashing the power of midlife confidence and unlocking the power of midlife women. I mean, I feel I've just entered this space. Slap bang, this book is for me, for sure. But it's also for the women that um, maybe I think it's, it could be, I guess it's a pre, not warning, warning's not the word, a manual. No, yes, it's, a, it's not a warning. I know what you mean. It's a, I think of it actually as a welcome. There you go. To this space. Mm. That's how I think of it. Even though the title is, unle- you know, Invisible to Invaluable, Unleashing the Power of Midlife Women, all women are going to get there at some point anyway. Yeah while we are alive. And so it is important, it's an intergenerational book for me. And so to give us a broad view, what's it about? It started for us from the fact that looking at the statistics, by the time a woman reaches about 50, she's being made redundant. If she's a professional woman, she's being made redundant. And we were thinking, well, what else can we do? Because we, you know, we were that, that age and Jane had been a creative director in an advertising agency. And a creative director is the person who, who creates the campaign, who decides how, what the campaign looks like, decides whether the, the advert will have black people in or not, or women in or not. She was at the top of her game. She'd gone to Australia to work. She worked over there. She came back here in her um, 50s, early 50s, and couldn't get a job. People would be telling her things like, yeah, Jane, we know you're really good. We know you're great. And we would give you a job, except that you'd be sitting in the corner, the old woman sitting in the corner. And it was just like, weird, top. What's going on? And so as she and I were talking about this feeling, because at that time I wasn't working doing the thing I love, which is writing for television and film and theater. But so we were kind of going, what can, what's going on and what can we do? And we found, we realized over time that most women in their late forties and early fifties feel like this thing that's happening to them is the, they're the only one it's happening to. And so we wanted to write this book to let people know you are not alone you really aren't alone. It's happening to all of us. This is what happens to us because we are 
the first generation and a half that have gone out into, into the workforce in the way that we have. And so as we are bucking up 45 and bucking up 50 and 55, we are being shed from the workforce. And most of us, certainly women up in my age group, most women up in my age group don't have a pension pot. So we have to keep working actually. And so it's about what can we do? What can you do to enter into the second half of your life with a confidence and create your own work, create your own platform? And yes, we're coming from the creative side, but there are other, we, what we know is that there are other things that women who may not be in the creative industries can also do. In this journey of creating and bringing this book to life, what was the biggest kind of revelation for you that validated, justified why you did it and really brought you to peace and like, oh my God, this, uh-huh. is, this is it, this was right. Yeah, I te- let me tell you, I won't tell you. Last August, there was a, a, an article, I think it was in a report from the Center for Aging Better and Learning and Work Institute, came up with this figure that one in eight men, after the, after the end of furlough, one in 10 men would lose their jobs, but eight out of 10 women would lose their jobs. Jesus. At that point, we just finished the first draft of the book. And we said, this, this is absolutely right. This is absolutely right. And it now is the time for us to talk to women and say, listen, they're warning us now that this is what's coming for us. What are we going to do? How can we navigate this new world? Because the thing about COVID-19 is that it, it stopped all of us in our tracks and gave us time, as well as all kinds of anxiety, it also gave us time to think about what we wanted to do, how we wanted to work, whether we wanted to be in those old jobs that we, we'd been in before. And if we didn't want to be in them, what were we going to do instead? And so that's, that was the thing that made me go, oh, you see, this is so brilliant. This is such a good idea. Now is the time. I want to get to know you. <laughs> <laughs> um, what book do you have to have in your collection wherever you go? If you move, if you go on the play, like what book is it that you've got to have with you at all times? Song of Solomon, Toni Morrison. Morrison, yeah. I love all of her books. But I think it's because Song of Solomon really got me in my feels Mm. the first time I read it. So I read it. It's one of those ones where every couple of years I read it again. Give me a song, if you can, a song or album that when your people put it on, they know that Carol's going to come and shake up her hips. Gosh, there are so many of them. Earth, Wind and Fire. Anything by them. Or... Do you remember? Of course. <laughs> it's not, not even start me up because I've come from far. If I even hear the inkling of that, I'm coming from far to dance to that. Okay. Give me a TV show or a film that whenever it's on, you can watch it. You'll stop everything and you'll watch it, even though you watched it a thousand times. NYPD Blue. The writing on that was brilliant. It was the first time I'd seen characters be reset every three or four seasons, they would reset Sipowitz. So Sipowitz would get his growth. And after four years, Sipowitz was sounding like a human being. And then they'd kill him wife. I'd kill him Pitney. Some, some, oh, they killed his partner. And he would go all the way back, never to write to the beginning. 
and then he would have to work hard again oh, at shed okay. and I loved that it, it taught me so much about how to how to structure a television series and something you saw on stage and that could be whether a concert play or anything that has had a like lifelong impact on you for colored girls who's which production oh gosh I saw it in Jamaica when I was training and okay. it never left me never left me I I want to do something like that um, now but but for television I want to explore the different lives of different women of African descent oh nice 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 um what's made you sad mad and glad this week sad mad and glad mad oh gosh Dominic and Boris good grief we're all mad you see what I'm saying yeah and sad has been it's a it's a hangover really from from the end of last week it's seeing Palestinian children crying and it was there's one particular clip I saw where a girl she was 10 she said I'm only 10 I'm a little girl <laughs> only good. 10 look look at the other kids we're only 10 that that made me really sad the glad yeah. <laughs> sorry the publishing of my new book with Jane Evans called Invisible to Invaluable Unleashing the Power of Midlife Women <laughs> I love it I love it I love it um and where can we get your book when can we get your book and what else you got going on what's what can we look out for from Carol Russell oh gosh you can get my book from all good bookstores and I'm writing a podcast series at the moment Ooh. that is oh gosh I, I'm trying to think how much can I say I think I can tell you this there was a Victorian man of African descent who was a, a circus owner and his name was Pablo Fank. And the reason why I know of him at all is because John Lennon of the Beatles used a poster that Pablo Fank had created with his friend who used to help him advertise his, his circus. He used that poster to write a song called Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. And it was on the Sgt. Pepper album. And I was watching something last summer um, on BBC Four that was talking about that album. And that's when I found out. No, they talked about the album. They talked about the, um, the, the, the song. And then my partner went online. And the next thing I heard, because I went down to Cork, the next thing I heard was as he was running down the stairs to come and say, Pablo Fank's black. Pablo Fank is black. <laughs> and I just went, what? And as he was telling me about this man, I, uh, an idea started to form in my head. Yeah. And so last year I did a, a pitching exercise with Albie James at the BFI uh, London Film Festival with Kwame and, and Amma was there and so yes, um, I did that and I pitched it and it got picked up. And so I'm now writing the pilot script for that uh, as a podcast series in the first instance and hopefully to be taken on to oh, a television series. I'm excited. That's amazing. Um, Carol, it's been wonderful talking to you. Long you. adieu. And yes, thank you.
No. Thank you very much. I've wanted to talk to you forever. No, I know. I love what you do. I love what you do. Well, I'm here standing on your shoulders, lady. <laughs> I try not to You're break. You're not even very heavy, you know. You're not even very heavy. That's good. That's good. Because I've lost a bit of weight over lockdown. I, I tried not to overeat. So, yeah. Try not to break you guys back. But no, thank you so much.